And we're live. Welcome to the Coffee with Craner show. I'm your host, Lyndon Crane, joined today by Sandra Pupatello. She served in the legislature of Ontario from 1995 to 2011 as an MPP and also minister for Windsor Sandwich, turning into uh, Windsor West uh, later down the road. Um, but she served in multiple portfolios um, with the uh, Ontario government. And aside from that, she served as chair of Hydro One. And for those watching that might be from the University of Windsor, she's an alumnus graduating with the Bachelor of Arts and also received an honorary doctorate of laws uh, from the University of Windsor. And today she's the president and founder of the Canadian International Avenues, where she's a strategic advisor for various uh, corporations, um, all about international trade. Sandra, thanks for being here. Nice to see you, even if it is virtually. Yes, it we is. We were talking earlier about what you've got in your cup, because I'm not going to tell you what's in my cup. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the yes. end of the day. It's the end of the day. Exactly. So, Sandra, I, I, I would imagine maybe there's coffee in your cup. Maybe not. Um, <laughs> where in Windsor would you say is your favorite place to get coffee? Well, I do. Because, look, I'm a I'm a Timmy's kind of girl. So I, I admit I've got Starbucks around the corner, but I also have Tim Hortons around the corner. Uh, but honestly, I have the old fashioned espresso maker on my stove at all times. Uh, several years ago, my brother uh, for Christmas or birthday or something, they bought me the actual frother. So I can make a mean cappuccino at home as well, a cafe latte, uh, but the espresso, just like my grandmother in Italy used to make, you know, the kind that you spin around and the coffee's in the middle and it comes flying out after a while. Anyway, still to me, that's the best kind of espresso. So I'm a homebody that way, but I've always got an active Tim Horton card, you know, so. Yes. And I heard that those watching should buy you Starbucks gift cards. <laughs> Only because we were talking that. It's sort of more of my frugal nature that I can't bear to pay the price of a Starbucks coffee. And because I always have to get a latte, no fat, no foam. And it's like five bucks, like five bucks for this coffee. So I, it's always like a special occasion when I'm at the Starbucks line. So I don't do that too much. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, if anyone wants to... Uh... Please, Sandra, get a, a couple of Starbucks cards for her. Listen, I I boost them on my phone. I've got the scanner. I got the whole. I'm ready. I'm ready for Starbucks. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway. well, yes. So to go into politics, I mean, you've had a very, very um, excellent career um, in politics. How did it start? How did you decide? I want to jump into to politics and pursue that. Well, I'm going to probably ask you, too, if you have some designs on politics, the fact that you want to talk about it kind of tells me that you just might. So I'm always fascinated with how young people get dragged in. Uh, and I'm all for dragging young people in. Let me tell you, when I was elected, one of the highlights for me was a conference that Susan Whalen and I used to do every year together. It was called Women in Politics, and it was a special effort to get all of all these young women, 10 per high school in all of Essex County, so 10 from every school, and they would come in and spend all day with us. We would bring speakers in and we would talk to these young women about why and how they could get into politics if they were interested. Because I found that guys just naturally find their way and women, you kind of have to 
take them by the arm and pull them in. Uh, so this was my way. And, and the, the best thing about it was that years later, I would meet women who are, that they completely made their career somehow in politics. And it all started because they attended our conference. So that's a big, you know, plus to say, you know, women have a responsibility, adults uh, who have a responsibility to be mentoring young people to get into the kind of career that they want. For me, I volunteered for Herb Gray. Literally, I started at age 14. So by the time I was 30 uh, and elected, I never imagined that that's how my political walk would go because uh, I was very, very happy being on executives of the local ridings and that sort of thing. But it was a bit of a shock to think, okay, maybe when I was younger, I could have dreamed that that would be something I did. But when it was happening at that point in my career, um, I, I had not thought that at that age, that's what I would be doing. I, I was pretty happy. I was a general manager at Rotary International, uh, doing the, the club that does the most fantastic things for the community and abroad. And I loved my job. And someone asked me, and that's how I went from being the volunteer to being a candidate uh, to be the liberal candidate in that 1995 election. I was asked. I, I mean, I imagine that's it's fairly nerve wracking jumping right into going as a, as a candidate. What was that like? Well, when I started the nomination race, there were three gentlemen already in the race in June and I entered at the end of August. So when I started it, I knew I had an uphill battle to sell memberships, to get my name out there, make sure that every membership I sold was to somebody who would show up at a meeting to vote for me because that, that's just how it works. And I, I stayed at it, but we eventually had that meeting the following February. So it was a bit of a long haul. And uh, by the time February rolled around, the other candidates dropped out and I became the only candidate left in the race. And, uh, and there you have it. Lynn McLeod was the leader of our party. I'm convinced that I would have not thought uh, that someone wouldn't have called me had it not been that we had a, a woman leader uh, and they said amongst themselves, look, we've got to get more female candidates. I just don't think I would have had that call. Yes. I mean, waiting it out and, and candidates, I guess, falling and, and not continuing. You're the only female running. That must have been. Well, run, I was selling a lot of memberships. <laughs> Let's say that. So and mm -hmm. I've been pretty open about, you know, the numbers like no one wants to be beaten by a chick. That's the way I figured it. So I thought that the more exposure I gave to how many memberships I was selling, the more likely uh, they would want to stand down. So in the end, that's how it worked out. But it was a great experience for me because it was me turning to all the people that I knew in a different way to suddenly go to them and say, look, I want to be that candidate. And they had never really thought of me in a political way before. Um, and so that was the first time that I realized soon as they know you're political of a particular party, all these people that, that you knew you always got along with, suddenly there's a bit of an edge and you realize, oh, they're not liberal or, oh, they're you know, of another party. So it was a bit of an awakening. You know, you come from always on the side of the angels and all of a sudden you've got some very partisan people and it was a lifelong lesson in how not to take these things personally that it isn't about me it's about the role uh and you have to constantly be cognizant of that so when i left politics it was the same thing if your phone isn't ringing it's not because they don't want to talk to you but you're not the minister anymore you're you're just sandra 
Uh, and I've always had a pretty keen sense. And, and that's probably because Herb Gray was such a fantastic role model. He was humble, uh, didn't matter how spectacular a role he had in Ottawa. He was, he was just such a down-to-earth guy. He, he knew his backyard uh, as much as he knew Ottawa. And, and I liked to use him as my guide all those years. And I mean, you, you mentioned going from, um, I think you, you called it angel, like being, <laughs> being the angel. And you're, you're on the side of the angels. <laughs> right, right. You're nonpartisan. And then you go into a role and you announce your candidacy. And you've built a community of people that love what you're doing. How did you work through that where you're now, you're now partisan? How do you know those people that let them know, I guess, that you're still going to support them? Well, I think you have to put your money where your mouth is. You really have to prove yourself. So I would say I didn't anticipate going into opposition for the first two terms of my career. Uh, my party didn't win, even though I did. So that was a rude awakening. I went from all of the fabulous projects that we were doing at Rotary that always have a good outcome uh, to being enmeshed in this opposition role that you can't just pick up the phone and make the solution happen on a dime. You have to work for it. So the issues, it gave me time, frankly, to learn about the issues, to learn about my community, to understand how these things are going to change. And I can tell you that when we finally became government in 2003, uh, we hit the ground running. We had done so much homework over what Windsor needed that my list, like I had a list. And uh, I remember in May, in May of 20, uh, 2011, I gave a speech at a chamber event. It was a chamber luncheon. And what they didn't, it might have been April, but what they didn't know is that I had pretty much decided that that, uh, that was going to be my last campaign, that I was going to announce I wasn't running because at that luncheon, I made the list. I said, here's the list I came in with. And here's the list that we finished. So when you hear that, you kind of, that's got a big clue. Like, look, I, I had a list. I did the list. Uh, uh, now it's time to move on to do other things. And that list was, you know, in my view, a pretty spectacular list of things. But it was everything that we, in talking with our community leadership, uh, that we knew we needed to have in Windsor. It included the med school. It included the new engineering school. Uh, that engineering building at the University of Windsor, I brought the first, the first minister was Bob Runciman, a conservative, who I begged to come to Windsor to have to do a tour um, of the old jail along with the engineering school um, right in 1995. Uh, and that's how long ago we had started working on a project that we couldn't finish uh, until we became the government. And then it was one of the first things we did, of course. Yes. And um, speaking of you accomplishing your list and, and knowing, I guess, this is where I'll, I'll hang up the, the suit and tie. Um, we, we did have a question that came in and wondering, uh, what are your future political aspirations? Would you ever get back into the game? Well, when I left in 2011, I honestly thought, look, I am young enough because sometimes you have to make a decision that you're either in for the long haul and you're going to retire or you have to get out before you're 50. So you've got some time to have a whole other career or do something different. And 16 years is a long time to have been as an MPP, finished a list um, and a me needing to have something more. 
uh, learn something different. I already had the best ministry ever, which was economic development and trade. I had the experience of the education ministry, community and social services, which was where the heart of the government is. I mean, if you get that portfolio right, you're doing right by the most vulnerable in our community. Um, so I thought, gosh, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you best that? You can't. Um, so, but I will say that a year later or whatever, that two years later, uh, Dalton McGinty resigned as leader and the opportunity to lead the party and lead the government became available. And I almost won that race but it was a big decision to actually run because I had left because there was no opening to be the leader at that time. So I think it's important for people who are career minded to look for opportunities where you're constantly growing. And that's what I, what I was hoping to do. And certainly running for the federal election last year, it is a whole new world with a completely different set of responsibilities in Ottawa. Uh, and just the way the provinces and the feds distribute rules and regs and responsibilities, you know, things like immigration, broad infrastructure, internationalization, the border issues, those are things that are in a different realm from what I was dealing with in Ontario. Um, so to me, that again is a huge growth opportunity that can I take what I learned and apply it there? And I think that answer was yes. Uh, am I done? That The jury's still out there because you just don't know what's around the corner. I do get frustrated when I know what we had uh, look, I grew up in a time where we had every single riding in Essex County, not only an MP of the government, a minister of the crown. Now, uh, no one no one in your age group was even on the planet when that happened. Uh, or, you know, but when that, when we had that kind of world for Essex County, that is often, you know, they, people claim it's often forgotten. Nobody was forgetting about it back then. We had Mark McGuigan, Eugene Whalen, Herb Gray. I mean, you name it. Paul Martin, uh, even though Paul Martin's riding was in Montreal, Paul Martin Sr. Uh, was like this omnipresent voice for, for our region. Um, and I want to get back to those days because I know uh, that Canada starts in Windsor, Essex County, and people need to know that. We've got a lot to contribute. And our voices matter down here. So there. <laughs> was that for a long answer? That was, no, that was great. And, and speaking on the Windsor-Essex topic, um, where do you see the biggest potential in Windsor-Essex? A biggest potential in terms of what? Our region. Where, what, what do we have as an advantage, do you think? Or what do you oh, well, love about Windsor-Essex? Well, okay, start like at the high level. Now we're going back to my days when I was economic development and trade minister, and I would be selling Ontario all over the world. And I would say, let me tell you about my hometown. Uh, Windsor is at the same latitude as Northern California. So just for some perspective on how far south we are, we have the best weather in the country. And I always marveled at how how does BC or Vancouver get this nomenclature of fantastic weather? It's always raining there. I mean, you know, in fairness to them, my friends that live there, but nonetheless, we've got great weather, but our location 
to a better point, not just for climate, which causes a fantastic agriculture environment where literally the cash crops of Canada come from Essex County. Uh, but in addition, the way we're nestled right in the middle of North America with this fantastic reach to our entire, you know, the, the whole of the continent, and then the way we've built our infrastructure for trade, uh, we can be abroad in five minutes with our products. So uh, when it comes to how we make things, we are literally at the heart of manufacturing in Windsor, Essex. And then we have the logistical capacity to go around the world. There isn't a place in North America that's like Windsor Essex from that perspective. So I find it easy to sell, uh, obviously because I did it, but I've also gotten to know our business people and I know how international they are. And we're just a very quiet secret, um, but we've got a fantastic environment to sell in Windsor Essex. Yes, yes. It's definitely a great place to be. And if I wasn't from their region, I, I'd move I'd move down here right away, right? Uh, I think you, you, <laughs> well, you still to me. Mean, uh, Lyndon, don't uh, don't count your chickens there. You might. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about your time as an MPP and minister. I guess what were some very proud moments you had during your time in office that you could share with us? Uh, you know, I think what's surprising is not necessarily the big things. It's not necessarily. I will tell you that at the announcement, sitting next to George Smitherman, we had George Smitherman here, Dwight Duncan there, and the three of us uh, at the medical school announcement was uh, it like it rocked our world because it became that that pivotal thing that meant we don't have a family doctor shortage anymore. It took us a little while after the doors opened, but that was our long-term solution. Man, did that ever feel good. When we launched the new engineering building, and I even got involved after I left politics in some fundraising for the university to name the school after Ed Lumley, who's a long, proud Windsorite, mm -hmm. uh, that when we launched that school, you know, after you work for something for so long, so hard, you almost can't believe it's there. And there it was like, oh my, that, that was fantastic. Um, but the things that I remember regularly are, you know, the people that I run into on the street that I met at one of their darkest days because they came to me because they had issues. Mm -hmm. And I had probably, you know, to this day, I still think I had the best staff that worked with me in my office that were like on it 24 seven, uh, helping people. We would be on the phones at six or seven or eight o'clock at night with bureaucrats all over the place, trying to solve problems for our constituents. Those little things that we managed to solve are those to me are really meaningful. Um, I had a great example that Candy Flood, who used to work with me literally from the moment I got elected right up until I retired. She said to me one day, we're building the, the new highway that's taking us to the new bridge. So the Herb Gray Parkway. And she said, we can't possibly let them destroy all those trees all those homes, because she's a she travels internationally to build homes for Habitat for Humanity. She says, we can't have them just demolish those homes. That's value there. And it was sort of like, oh, my God, Candy, that would be just such an enormous undertaking to try to do something there. But I, I was looking at it, like she was just so um, sincere. It's like, OK, we, we need to try this. It became the largest. We called it the 
pay it forward project. And it became the largest initiative of its kind. I don't, I want to say in the world, because I don't know if it happens anywhere outside of Canada, but certainly in Canada, where we even had to train volunteers under the new species at risk act, because our volunteers went in to take out all the materials. So we worked with Habitat for Humanity, we had to get an army of volunteers to take out all materials that could be saved. Then we went to these forestry type groups, uh, nursery type volunteers to take out as many trees and bushes as we could survive so that we could relocate them all because otherwise they literally would have just been you know, torn down by bulldozers. And I don't know, two years later, I would say, after getting a lot of grief from bureaucrats that didn't want to go through the hassle, our, our ministry at the government of Ontario ended up winning this massive award because of the creativity of that very project. Uh, and of course, we could count how many tons we saved from going into the landfill, how many trees and greenery we were able to save. So it's kind of like, you know, it, it, it might not mean anything to anybody, but to me, that was such a huge undertaking with came all from an idea that Candy had. And it meant so much that we could find a way to make that happen. So mm -hmm. that's kind of a cool, cool project and something I like to, to think about. And I have a, a ton of little things here and there. I don't have a, you know, one of those vanity walls in any one place, but here and there I have these little things that will remind me of a whole story of this really cool thing we did uh, in some one of those years while I was elected. Yes, I mean, you've had to, you've been able to work on some pretty impressive projects and it must be uh, a sense of satisfaction and um, I, I don't know, going and seeing uh, the, the uh, engineering building after it's been built and the shovels are in the ground and it, it must be just well, a, a great feeling. You know, it's silly things. When I was a kid, I used to ride my bicycle from my house, uh, which was just off of Erie Street. And I used to ride my bike to the McDonald's on Droulard when I was 14 years old. Not a great bike ride, okay? A little <laughs> bit dangerous. Anyway, um, and, and I literally, I rode my bike everywhere I went babysitting. And I still remember growing up thinking, we've got the most awful roadways with these damn railway tracks. And I remember thinking that. Fast forward years later, you know, every time I go down Howard Avenue at the tracks at Eugenie, all I can think of is, Oh my God, this looks so good because <laughs> even like they put the little maple leaf, fancy maple leaf decals on the cement. Yes. We worked so hard to get that money to put those, uh, those underpasses there so that traffic didn't have to constantly be stopped by those rails. And, you know, I'm all for rail traffic. We need more railway in Canada, but what it used to do to Windsor was pretty awful. So we did all of these new cuts for the rail the one at walker road fantastic and if you grew up like i did we were always stopped by trains at walker road and at howard avenue it used to drive people crazy so we managed to find and it was a lot of money i think it was about 50 million per exchange wow um and i remember harinda takar coming into town with this big batch of money, like $300 million that he signed uh, at the mayor's, actually in the mayor's council chambers. And we got money out of that pot to finally do those interchanges. So, you know, if I take a ride around Windsor, uh, like I get to look at this stuff and say, oh, I remember arguing with so-and-so about that one. And <laughs> I remember that fight. And it's a very, it's just a great 
anyway, it's fantastic. It's certainly not just me and me doing those things. There were a lot of us, but it, it made me interact with so many people from my own hometown. Uh, and I still see them to this day. So we're all there for the right reasons, right? And we've got lots to show for a lot of hard work. Yes, definitely. Well, well, Sandra, if you have time, we did have some great questions that came in. Um, if you don't mind me asking those to you. Sure, sure, sure. All right. So uh, a question. I think I saw Yazdan doing something on Facebook. Oh my God, please say hello. <laughs> Hi, Yazdan. <laughs> oh, awesome. that's a good. Um, this is a nonpartisan show. Is that right? I mean, I let the guests take it where they want to take it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because, you know, we need people from all parties. Yes. No, many it, people. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So <laughs> I, I had a question come in. Um, Transit Geek Joe, um, define leadership in a paragraph or less, especially as you were an acting premier. Well, that's a tough one. Leadership, you know, I'm I'm of the I'm I'm a firm believer that a leader isn't going to be the same kind of person or the same type uh, in even every six months because you have to be the leader for what the time requires. Um, so someone like a Winston Churchill, if he had been prime minister in the 80s, as opposed to the 30s, I don't think it would have gone as well for him. So I'm always, you know, when I look at these historical positions that people have had, it's funny how the really great ones, they meet their event that that kind of dis that uh, then distinguishes them as a good leader. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be the type that when when we're in a crisis, the population has to know that there are people they can turn to to have that that feeling of relief. Like, okay, she's got my back on this one. They they need to feel that, and that that's I sort of took my lessons from some of my mentors who I thought were great leaders, and they had. Uh, a capacity of patience. They really listen. So if I had to define the characteristics is listening because you can't, you can't listen if you're talking, <laughs> right? And you know, all the people that really, oh, I talk a lot or what, well, you can't be listening if you're talking. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important that leaders are humble, that they don't forget where they come from and that they listen. Uh, all those other things like you have to be smart, you have to be curious. I think those are those are a given. But in particular, in political leadership, all of that other leadership characteristic that you need, like curiosity and, and being humble, etc. But when you're in politics, you have to listen. Um, you know, you, you don't have eyes 360 around your head, so you can't possibly know everything that's going on around you that is going to influence how you respond to events. Uh, so you have to have that capacity to listen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I imagine you relied on your team a lot for to be the back, the eyes at the back of your head, right? Oh, I did. I did. And I, I when I reflect, uh, even today, when I see the people who worked with me in my offices, when I look at what they're doing today, uh, it is just a constant reminder that I had such great people uh, and that we could feed off each other. You know, if I was there at seven o'clock at night, I was never by myself. There were always others with me prepared to put in the long hours. Um, if, if there were people that were, you know, 
whatever the reason, if they were like, you have to get this call in and it would be Candy or Marion or Teresa in the early days, Teresa Perusa, who then went on to become the MPP for our region. Um, you know, those are the people. And I think, you know, if I had acquired one good skill, it's finding really good people. And I'm, I don't know if that's a, you can't give up a skill like that. If you have it, you really need it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Yeah. Um, one more question for you that came in, if you have time. Um, how was it to be one of the only three women elected to the legislature for the first time that you won? And that was from Yasin Nico. Okay. I wonder how he knew that. You'd have to study pretty intently to know that. But I do remember um, when I was first elected in 1995, realizing holy cats, there are not a lot of women around here. And what was striking is that as our caucus would have a meeting, especially the first few days, weeks or whatever, everybody was trying to sort out how they were going to live in Toronto because you have to go up there on a Sunday, you stay all week and then you come home Thursday nights, right? And the guys were all talking about how so-and-so was going to room with so-and-so and this one was going to share an apartment with so-and-so. And I was there with two other women who were both from Toronto, the leader who lived in Toronto because she was originally from Thunder Bay. Uh, and the other one was from Toronto that, well, I guess I'll be by myself. So I literally had to make sure I found a place that, and, and in those days we used to sit till midnight. So I would usually be walking home to my apartment to sleep at about one in the morning because we'd have night shifts that would go until midnight, right? So you didn't want to be, you know, walking the streets by yourself at that hour, that kind of thing. Um, so I remember that. And I didn't know that when I when I left, it was such a different place that 16 years seems like a long time. But in the face of, um, I guess, history, in four terms, we went from three women to almost a third to a half. And that is significant. That is a significant achievement. Um, so I think that takes a lot of work to do that because you want you want more women active in all levels. You want more women as chiefs of staff. More, you know, you don't just want to give women the reception role. Um, and I was pretty determined as an MPP in a government. Um, I said, women, if you're in cabinet, they would tend to be in the social portfolios. My first portfolio, social services. My second education so those were very typical uh places to put women in cabinet and the one that i always wanted i was kind of bald-faced about it by the end was economic development and trade and it turned out that there had only been one other woman uh, it's very rare to have a woman in an economic portfolio and what i realized is that that work put me in an environment where I was typically the only woman at the table. So if I were meeting business groups, stakeholders, associations, my colleague ministers in the business, um, I was usually the only woman in the room. Mm -hmm. so that mm -hmm. was interesting. Now, I will tell you that I think that was an advantage because when you're trying to sell Ontario, which was what my job was as economic development and trade, um, you need to be remembered. They have to remember you. And uh, I still remember maybe 10 years later, a friend of mine was in India and had been at some function that's an annual event. And the local business people had went to this fellow who they knew was from Ontario. And he said, now what happened to that? Where's that tall one, that tall woman with the long hair? Like, 
in the end, after all that, it just became that the fact that I was a woman made me memorable. Even 10 years later, um, they were still talking about Ontario and, and this sort of thing. So um, I don't always think it's that bad. So I know we're not at half yet and we should be getting there and more. Uh, but I feel like I took advantage of being a woman um, when it suited us. And uh, I, I, I didn't feel like it was a detraction all the time. It uh, gave us some challenges for sure and some um, issues that we have to face as, as politicians that I still see women are facing today, uh, which is very unfortunate. But in the main, um, I had a leader who was, I could only describe him as an egalitarian. He, he absolutely was. I was very fortunate that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I mean, working in economic development and trade as a woman, that must have been nerve wracking. But at the same time, you said, like you mm -hmm. mentioned, you left and people remembered you. And yeah, I, I, they said, oh, where's that woman from? You know, and it was sort of like the first day I went to Queen's Park when, when they would do this, um, you know, get to know you session. It was sort of uh, orientation of the house. And I'd be walking through, and I remember we didn't win a majority, so there weren't that many liberals there. Uh, so they were all conservatives because they just swept the house in that election in 1995. They probably had 80% of the seats. And many of them were, let's just say, my complete opposite. So they were probably all over 60 white guys. And everyone asked me which member I worked for, because from their perspective, what would a woman, young woman at that time, what's she doing in this room, except that she must be working for one of the MPPs. And I would keep saying, no, I am the MPP. I'm the MPP from Windsor. So anyway, those are the first couple of weeks of the job. And then we had to make sure they remembered Windsor. So I like to think that they certainly remembered after that. Yes. Well, I think when many people think of Windsor, they think of Sandra. And um, I think you've been an absolute champion for Windsor-Essex. And it's shown, I mean, receiving um, the 2014 Canada's Top Most Powerful Women Award, right? It speaks to the, the involvement and the um, advocacy work you did for, for women's issues across government and across Canada. It was all a lot of fun too. So it had that added benefit. But yes. uh, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. No, I, I think it's it's awesome. And I, it was an absolute pleasure. I mean, speaking with you tonight, Sandra, and there's so many comments that came on. Um, uh, people just saying that they could sit and listen to all of your accomplishments and oh, how amazing you are. Um, Tina, you must have other things to do. <laughs> somebody from Iowa. Yes, yes. Lots of... Uh, what is her great, greatest political... What? Her greatest political, political defeat. Win. Greatest and political greatest win. political defeat. Um, so political, I'm going to assume he must mean issues. An mm -hmm. issue. Um, wow. See, you know, because I kind of put everything in buckets about everything related to my hometown yes. and then everything related to my ministries. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I can't politically, you know, it's hard to say now because the world's changed so much since I was in the role, say, of community and social services. But mm -hmm. when I got there in 2003, what was happening to people with developmental disabilities was they were aging out of high school and there was no system to give them anywhere to go. So if they were 19 years old, graduated from high school, it was a disaster for their family and for them. 
So one of the first things I did as minister very early on was we moved that age group to 21. So we actually bought ourselves some time so that these people could stay in school. Big win for families in the developmental disability world. Um, after that, we created what we called the passport program, where when I tell you we went begging for money, I will never forget the budget uh, debate. Uh, and you're not supposed to talk about what goes on in the cabinet. So I won't other than to say uh, I had so much support from my colleague cabinet ministers for them to all have to say, we have to give her more money uh, because they knew what we were going to do with the money. Because I could tell them these stories about people with developmental disabilities who are adults and the system isn't capable of managing them. And we put in what was at that time, just like a record amount of new money into the system. And uh, to this day, I still see people that are involved in the developmental disability community. And we just have like this big bond because at that time it was like we, we, we moved the earth with what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and I think today, the challenges that exist today, they we're, we haven't solved the issue yet. Um, all I know is that when you put people in that role that have the will, there is a way uh, to make a difference. Uh, and those kinds of funds, they impact so many people because it isn't just the you know 25 year old with down syndrome that needs a place every day to go mm -hmm. it's the four people that live in the home in his house and how they're impacted it's the aging parents who who worry where where you know what do i do what what happens to my son when i die and these were very real questions for me and it, it really came back to for me um i don't know if anyone's going to remember but i will never forget a woman named peggy reno in Windsor and I was in university volunteering on her board and at that time the board made a huge decision to buy the Edinburgh school a grade school and it became the home of this agency that took care of adults with physical uh, um, uh, developmental disabilities because they needed a place to go but I'll tell you Peggy lives on today because the people she influenced ended up being in positions that could actually do something about it. And uh, and she's a Windsorite. And I can tell you, when I got to see what was happening in the world of developmental disabilities, people like Peggy in Windsor were so beyond, like they were so before her time in, in the way she thought. Um, I showed up at Queen's Park thinking, every community bought schools and revamped yeah. them for these types of programs. But in fact, that was not happening, but it did happen in Windsor. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I just found that Windsor, we were so ahead of our time. Hospice mm -hmm. is another fantastic example. You make an assumption that every community has a hospice as legendary as the one we have. In fact, Windsor's was the first one to actually get government funding for their services from our government. Uh, and I, I still remember that uh, Carol at the time as the ED, uh, they put a big tent outside and we had this big event, you know, George Smitherman was the minister at the time he came down for this big announcement. And it was amazing that once again, Windsor shows the world that we can do these things in a very different and creative way. And then finally the government's catching up, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, 
yeah, funding for developmental disabilities and um, a new hospice. Talk about achievements for Windsor and um, talk about a resume. I'd say uh, you've accomplished so, so much and continue to be a huge voice for the folks in Windsor Essex, aspiring politicians and even women. And uh, Sandra, I really value your time tonight being on the show. Well, it was nice talking to you. And so next time we're going to have a coffee in real time. Yes. Yes. Maybe we can do one of these in person. That's right. We will. And thanks to everybody who sent their little notes along. That was fun to watch them pop up on the screen while we're talking. That was great. Thanks, yeah. Lyndon. Thanks, Sandra. And thanks to Take those that, uh, that tuned in. We'll see you very soon. Good stuff. Take care, everybody.